Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And on this episode, we turn to a source, or more precisely, a tool that is truly ubiquitous, Google. The search engine is a place so many of us go to begin our quest for information. In 2019, Google was the most visited website in the U.S. with nearly 259 million unique visitors. And among search engines, Google has a 62.5% market share in the U.S. and an almost 88% share worldwide. And of course, Google is much more than just a search engine now with other pieces such as YouTube, Google Maps, and Gmail. So what is Google's role as an information source or a tool to find information? And more specifically, how does it shape the information we see on a day-to-day basis? To help us answer those questions, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Alexander Halloway, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona School of Social and Behavioral Sciences and author of Search Engine Society, Volume 1 in 2008 and Volume 2 in 2017. Dr. Halloway, thanks so much for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. My pleasure. So let's start with, I guess, kind of more of a global kind of question. That is, how difficult is it at this point to to kind of quantify Google's role and influence on the news and information that that people get? Pretty difficult, actually. I mean, um, part of the issue is that it is invisible infrastructure in a way that we really don't think about it. it. And so it's hard to quantify it exactly. We know that in terms of the market, in terms of the search engine market, they're extraordinarily dominant. Uh, But it's often difficult to think about just how influential they are across different media systems. And I guess uh, even in in the period between the the first volume of your book, Search Engine Society in 2008, and the second volume in 2017, I imagine there was a pretty big shift even in that relatively small time frame in in what Google was and, and what kind of influence it wielded. Yeah, in fact, it's always dangerous to write in this area in technology because by the time it went to press, one of the major pieces had already changed. It had already uh, thrown away its its pledge to never do personalized search, and and a lot of other little things had had changed even between the time uh, when I submitted the the, uh, manuscript for the first edition and and when it hit the press. So certainly over the, the decade, things changed. Now, in terms of the domination of that particular company, I don't know that had changed. I think it had sort of become more kudzu-like and, um, and, uh, and become a little bit less visible in some ways. I think that people don't go, uh, they still go to the search engine to the, you know, the big white screen and look for things, but I don't think that happens quite as much. I think a lot of more is happening kind of 
under the under the table or or behind covers. So yeah, and piggybacking on that, it, it, you know, can you give us a little perspective, if you can, on, on just how much you know, or how different uh, people's ability to seek and find information is? Just the average person, because they have search engines like Google. I mean, it, it just I, I, I guess that's. What you're saying is, is that in some ways we probably don't even notice how big an influence it is on, on our ability to, to seek and find news and information. Right. I mean, um, I guess there's a parallel here between um, how we use search and how we use our cell phones. I, I know I still know the phone number of my grandparents' house when I was, you know, six or seven years old. That's one of about three phone numbers I now know. Um, when I was in college, I knew by heart, you know, the, the number for the pizza place and a whole bunch of other numbers. But as the phone has taken over that role where we don't need to know those phone numbers by heart anymore, um, we kind of have lost that ability to, to memorize them or, or don't need it anymore. And I think that's happening an awful lot. I mean, I think um, uh, it may just be me getting older and losing my memory, but, you know, I, I think we have moved to this point where there are things that we don't really need to know at the tip of our fingers, we could always look things up, right? We could always go to the library if we'd forgotten a particular fact. You know, this is the question of memorizing dates in history or something like that. We could always look that up before, but now we have it at our hand, you know, over dinner, not having to remember the name of a movie or the name of or who was acting in a particular film, because we can look it up right away. And so I think that we've come to rely on that. Uh, you know, there's this interesting question, this, this has come up in lots of technologies, of what happens when that disappears. And it, it's kind of an arbitrary question, but um, it, it becomes real when, you know, there's a, a fight right now in, in, in Australia and, and shaping up in Canada about whether they're going to allow Google to continue to operate there or whether Google will pull out of those countries. We have this, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment. I mean, at least if, if you know, uh, what would you do if you lost Google? Like, how would that change your, your day-to-day behavior? I think not as much as it might have even five or six years ago, but still... Uh, we've come to rely on it as a as a, uh, a sort of outsourced brain for us. I was going to say, and I guess that has kind of implications, you know, particularly when you talk about you know, things like news. When when you're just you're talking with somebody, you you, you and you're, you're debating a point or something like that, that you can quickly look something up to back up your point or refute somebody's point. That it, it does make it almost instantaneous your ability to kind of uh, you know build an information base that maybe you wouldn't have you know, been able to do when you had to, you know, back when, you know, you and I were younger, go to the library and find that information first. Right. And I, I do wonder, I mean, how that affects uh, this, this ability to agree to disagree, right? <laughs> At some point you do have a, a fact check right there in your pocket. The question is whether you actually get the facts when you do that. Uh, I'm I like everybody on social media and I do surprisingly still see things like, I, you know, where did you find that piece of information? Well, it was, it's from Google. Um, this idea of Google as a source rather than as a tool to find a source is is still still sticks around, especially among or I think among the older generation where they see the search engine as the source, and right. and so that's problematic you know, on one hand. But yes, you're right. You you now have that access to the to information at your fingertips and can kind of uh, pull that up rather than having to go find it. Well, you mentioned the idea that it's not a source; it's a tool, and and you know Google and and other search engines out there. Uh, there's there there is more than just Google. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you know Google is like some of the other search engines that are out there, and what kind of separates it from the crowd? Is, is there a reason for that incredible market share that that we talked about earlier? Well, 
in in one sense, it's a it is a, a natural monopoly, and I, that that's part of the invisible piece of Google. So, um, you know, they've been pulled up uh, before the U.S. Congress and and asked about that monopoly status, and they say, oh well, anyone could could come forward like we did, and you know, in their garage right now, someone is building the Google killer, um, and I, I don't think that's quite true. Uh, at this point, uh, it takes an enormous amount of actual electricity to crawl the internet. A, a large portion of the traffic on the internet is Google's bots going out and finding new information. That operation is tremendous in its scale. Back in, um, back in you know, two decades ago, when people talked about the NSA, they talked about their computing power in terms of acreage. And I think you can, you can, you know, rather than machines, in terms of acres of, of, of computing power. And I think you're you're there with Google as well. That they're that their uh, data centers are just tremendous. And so that literal physical infrastructure is often invisible because, you know, it's not in Silicon Valley. It's out in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, including uh, places like Arizona. And so that piece is really difficult to kind of make up. And so I think part of that dominance is is that there's really only a handful of companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, um, and some, some, you know, second and third runners that have that kind of, physical infrastructure to do that work. Its initial, um, its initial success came from, from finding a way to, um, well, to get rid of porn in your, in your search results, put it quite simply. That uh, there were a number of search engines, all of them attempting to come up with the best way to come up with the answer you were trying to get, and the, the companies that were selling porn online, one of the first really successful, um, uh, you know, uh, Ventures that online <laughs> that actually made money um, were really trying to uh, force the hand of the search engines and and make them uh, appear more quickly and 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 as a result of completely unrelated searches. And so Google found a way. The founders of Google found a way of looking at basically citation um, structures and 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 surfacing some of the. Uh, more useful, or this is the way they would put it, or more relevant search results. And so I think that's, that gave them their initial, uh, their initial competitive advantage, and um, and that kind of led to this dominance. And but I, but at this stage, I really don't think it's the technology so much. Although they do also have intellectual capital, they they hire an enormous number of PhDs and researchers. But I think it is largely that physical infrastructure, that that kind of heavy machinery that allows them to maintain that position. You've talked a lot about this kind of invisible piece of Google, and I suppose one of the things that work here is something that we've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, that's the role of, of algorithms. Uh, what can you tell us about Google's use of algorithms and the impact they have on, on what we see now when we search on Google? Sure. So, I mean, that that first competitive advantage was with a particular algorithm called PageRank, which they patented and, and gave them that advantage. But Google finds what it thinks is most relevant using uh, a large number of signals. And, and uh, if you talk to people who are trying to reverse Google's algorithms, these are folks involved in search engine optimization, uh, they will tell you they know the number and none of them know the number. This is kind of like the, the seven secret ingredients or, or, or Coke's recipe, right? This is what, what Google banks on is that. Uh, is a secret way of, of figuring out what out there should surface and what should be buried. And so they have that ability of, of kind of changing the agenda on very small micro topics 
using this system, this algorithm that chooses what is relevant and what is irrelevant. And and then like in other systems that use uh, algorithmic processes, often they will um, revert to this naturalistic uh, argument, which is, well, we're just fine. You know, it's, it's not, there's no influence from Google on this. It just finds the most relevant material. But that's, that's not the case, right? Anytime we're choosing what is and what is not relevant, whether it's us or a machine, that is not a neutral process. Uh, that is not a balanced process. It is a deliberately unbalanced process. That is what we go to Google for, for bias. That's what we go to newspapers for. We, want all, we don't want all the news. We only want the news that's fit to print. And so, um, so uh, we rely on Google to do that, and Google relies on the secrecy of that process to make it work and not to have it be reverse-engineered by those materials. I'm curious what uh, Google's reach in other areas, things like you know, Maps, Gmail, YouTube, you know, Chrome as a web browser. Uh, w- what impact they have on... Uh, how people obtain information, what they see, and, and kind of shaping what they see beyond you know the, the algorithms and things like that. Yeah, so Stephen uh, Nathan has a book called "The Googleization of Everything," um, and Google, you know, from fairly early on, said that their mission was not search; uh, it was kind of changing uh, information into knowledge, which is sounds like a very high. <laughs> I mean, that's my that's my goal as well. So I guess we share that, <laughs> uh, but. Um, you know, so they, they've moved into a large number of these areas. I think it's worth noting that, that for all of that high-mindedness, Google is chiefly an advertising company. Right? This is how they make money. Um, but they attract people to their services, and then they sell advertisers that attention. So they're in the you know, that, that, that's how they make their money is, is converting attention into, into sales to advertisers. Um, and so, yes, that, uh, they have moved into a lot of these spaces. And although, like I said, I, I think if we imagine Google, the search engine disappearing, it probably would not have that large effect. If we thought a little bit about kind of the ways it has moved into a large number of areas, I think the disappearance of all of Google services at one would be probably a fairly enormous hit on the Internet as a whole. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I do think that, that you've seen some incursion into this by companies like Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, Google has kind of moved into quite a bit more than, than I think we imagine, and, and certainly the branded product, product. I mean, I'm surprised by the number of people who don't make the connection of Google to YouTube, uh, despite a fairly obvious connection <laughs> there, but, um, you know, uh, the front-facing Google properties like, like uh, YouTube and like uh, Gmail... Uh, and for example, Docs, which has, has right. moved into a, Google Docs and, and Drive, which have moved into a lot of spaces. I think people kind of make that connection. But a lot of the stuff that undergirds this—I mean, most of the maps you see online still are are, are, are powered by Google. Um, Google has digitized and owned a huge number of books, um, you know, uh, at, as part of their their Google Books project. So, uh, just the amount of data that they hold and the amount of data that they transfer on a given day is is largely, again, I, I keep coming back to this, it's not intentional necessarily, but is is not something that we necessarily look at and see. It happens between as business-to-business kinds of transactions, um, or it happens as part of the advertising that you see on, on a newspaper site, for example, um, is often powered by Google Ads. And so uh, those kinds of things that happen uh, beyond what we see as branded 
Google stuff, which is already quite a bit on the Internet. One thing that people have looked at a lot as they've researched Google and its search results is, is the implications on inequality and racism. Uh, what is, what is you, your research found in, in this area of, of looking at Google and, and, it, and its effect? Yeah, and so this is this especially gets back to this question of algorithms and, and equity, right? That, that you know a computer can't be racist is, is kind of this this go to knee jerk reaction, and um, and of course a computer can be racist when it's programmed by humans, and largely what Google does is reinscribes some of the inequities that already exist. So uh, if you are looking at things like uh, what websites are authoritative. And what you're using as your measure of that is what other websites think are authoritative. Uh, you end up with, uh, you know, kind of a vote that, that looks very much like how people in the population might consider uh, determining authority. So that, that's kind of an, that's the first step that reinscribes, writ large, many of the inequities that already exist in society. And so this is this kind of, uh, you know, this is the, the example of Microsoft's, Microsoft's uh, Twitter bot that started spouting racist rhetoric, and people said, you know, what, what were those programmers thinking? And, and, uh, and it really had less to do with the programmers than the fact that they were on Twitter, and, and anybody that is on Twitter for very long will, will uh, learn from that, uh, and, so, and, and learn in not a particularly nice way. So in some ways, I think Google is a mirror, and therefore when we see uh, racist search results, what we're seeing is a mirror of a racist society. But there are specific cases in which it seems to um, not just reinscribe, but uh, deepen those kinds of reactions. And so, uh, particularly when it could be manipulated, that's one example where, for example, uh, search results for Martin Luther King for, for a time, the first search result was, was uh, a page that was produced by uh, a group of white nationalists um, that, that, that slandered Dr. King. And so that, that, where it's been manipulated is, is one example where um, where kind of uh, uh, inequality can, can be pushed forward and then uh, reproduced by the search engine. Uh, but there are other examples as well. I mean, um, uh, a colleague was recently noting that uh, that they were working on a uh, they were working in searching for for a, something about Asia, and um, the the keyword Asian has was was had kind of fallen into uh, a an, a forbidden keyword in their school searches. Uh, this is at a, at a K through 12 level, and the reason is that Asian girls is usually used to look for pornography um, rather than looking for girls in Asia, which is just kind of this writ large um, uh, problem with the way people think about the kind of race and and objectification. But then it kind of gets repercussions, which is the word Asian as a as a bad word or a forbidden word um, is is a significant problem. Right. And so um, when it does reinscribe those, it can really retrench them in an extreme way. Given that and the reach that that Google has, um, what do you see as its responsibility for policing? these issues and, and things like the spread of misinformation or dis- disinformation, fake news, those type of things? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, if their business is creating bias, I think they have a primary responsibility to make sure that that creation of bias, of, of selection, of determination of what's important and what is not, is 
socially responsible. And so uh, it is not, you know, I, I am not a technologist in that I don't build search engines, but I know enough about them to know that it is a challenge. Uh, this is an epistemic challenge as well, determining kind of this is what journalists are dealing with, uh, have always dealt with and are dealing with now, this question of balance versus neutrality versus objectivity um, versus just finding the facts, right? Um, uh, and so this is a question that, that, frankly, a lot of folks who are trained in computer science often don't get a very good grounding in. They may have, most of them do have, you know, half a course or a course in ethics. Right. But this larger question of how do you determine how much you should manipulate those results, you know, aside from the, oh, that's a bad result, we should we should kind of get rid of that, or should we open this up to voting by others? Um, that question of how you do that is a much more difficult one to tackle. The question of whether they should do that is an easy one, which is, yes, they have a responsibility to make sure that the mirror that they hold up does not reflect um, the most pernicious parts of our society and, and, and um, you know, to the detriment of the society as a whole. Let's, uh, let's flip the script then, having talked about Google's responsibility in, in, in these kind of discussions. Um, how about users? Are there ways for people to be more thoughtful, informed users of search engines like Google and use it to be a better consumer of information? Yeah. So, I mean, in the same way that you would, again, I, I keep coming back to this, uh, being an informed um, reader of news or, or viewer or listener of news, I think that you can be an informed searcher of the web or searcher of the Internet as a whole. Um, part of that is is some basic literacy, to be sure, of understanding a little bit about how Google works and how it determines where uh, information is coming from. Part of it is making sure that you don't have a a singular diet of a single search engine for where you're getting information. And so there are some options out there, including those that kind of pose themselves as direct options, uh, something like DuckDuckGo. Um, you know, the, the truth is that, you know, in terms of actual search results, Google still has the largest uh, engine. So you do often surface things there that you wouldn't otherwise, but they can be very deep in those search results. So, um, you know, there's no reason not to go to Bing or DuckDuckGo or even something like Baidu, even though we know that there are censorship issues there. This is Baidu is the, the largest search engine in China and, and one of the largest in the world. Um, you know, there, there are certain issues with censorship there that are directly government-related and also culturally related. But kind of broadening your diet is another way to, to make sure that you're you're getting a little bit of a, a, a push there. But some of this is simply not relying too heavily on Google's ability to filter these things. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you go to a website and you, and you are, are relying on that website to do the heavy lifting of determining what's important and what's not, that's problematic. And so you need to be willing to see Google as, a, as something that is, able to dig and uncover materials, but then you have to be willing to engage in those materials critically as well. And so uh, looking ahead a little bit, and I know you kind of you talked a little bit earlier about so what would happen if, if Google disappeared and there are some, some places that are, are looking at you know, Google's role, um, what are your thoughts on where Google is headed? Uh, what might it look like in 
three, five, even you know, ten years out for people using it. So I I do think it is um, you know, as we said, even over the last decade, it's kind of faded into the background, and I think it's as important as it always has been, but is continuing to do that. I think that um, you know people don't think about search in the way that they might have when search engines were new. It's no longer their first stop for looking for things. Uh, and as I said, if Google disappeared, where would I go? It turns out that, that strangely, although I've never, I think, searched on Facebook, that the number of searches performed on Facebook has increased to the point where it's beginning to rival Google. Um, you know, uh, people find information when they want more current information, when they want something immediately, they'll turn to something like Twitter. Um, so in some ways, I, you know, people are looking at different... If I'm looking for, for, strangely, if I'm looking for facts, I might go to Wikipedia first, as Google does in many cases. So I, I think that um, people are finding other places to find things. But also, uh, a lot of what Google does is, is looking at search um, kind of outside of that search box. So we'll continue to search, uh, but I think Google will take up a, a role that is much more supportive in that process. Over the next 10 years, I think that we're moving away from what's the best website for to answer a question to um, what's the best answer to a question. Uh, and so what I just said a minute ago will become less and less relevant as we're asking Google or Alexa or our phone to answer a question for us. In other words, we don't want you to take us to a source. We want you to give us the answer. Uh, and so I think that we've seen much quicker than I had expected. And, and I'm usually, um, uh, you know, uh, I usually overestimate the ability of technology to, to perform. But I think more quickly than I had expected, we are seeing uh, advances in the ways in which uh, computers can begin to um, formulate answers that are much more human-like. And so I suspect that Google will be, this is one of the, the, the ways in which Google organized itself as a way of, of kind of sucking up all this information. The search engine for the web was initially intended to be able to get this large corpus of material, you know, the knowledge of the web as a whole, and to try to make sense of it in a way that is more like a human, that is more like an intelligence. And I suspect Google, along with other players, will be fighting to be first in that realm and, and fighting to create answers that are not uh, search results, but rather results results. And that brings with it a lot of the concerns that we've already had, uh, but to a, a much higher degree, I think. And finally, we'd like to end this podcast by asking each of our guests, uh, where do you get your news and information on a daily basis? What are your kind of favorite sources for, for news and information? So I, it's funny because I think I've I've gone uh, backwards a bit, but uh, I am I am a newspaper reader, um, and uh, I, I wonder if that has shifted for a lot of people over this time. But uh, on a daily basis, I will I will pick up a paper, and and for a while, honestly, that was through Google News, looking for that filter because it was catching more things. And, and these days, you no, know, like I I go and I don't want to kind of endorse, but I I go to the some of the major national. Uh, papers. Well, I will. I, you know, I, I generally do uh, New York Times, Washington Post, and, and Wall Street Journal. And so I will. I, I am looking to those newspapers to a degree that I haven't for a while to kind of um, help me with thinking about an agenda. Uh, so uh, I, I am moving away from Google despite it being uh, 
is something that I think about quite a bit. Fascinating. Thank you so much for the conversation, Dr. Alexander Halliday, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona School of Social and Behavioral Sciences and author of Search Engine Society Volumes 1 and 2. We really do appreciate your time and for you joining us here on the Matter of Facts podcast. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.